happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room, episode number 203. On December 30th, 2020, we have less than 48 hours left of this terrible year. But my name is Jason Neifer. I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the fabulous University of Montana campus here in Missoula, Montana. And joining me tonight to celebrate the end of 2020, Dr. West Fryer. Good evening, sir. How are you tonight? Good evening, Jason. I am doing well. I am continuing to enjoy our two weeks of Christmas vacation. I am the technology integration and innovation specialist at the Cassidy School, where I've also been teaching Spanish for the, the semester, and we'll do that remotely next week as we go back for a planned uh, four days of remote learning. And we have the our new trimester rolls over uh, on, on January 8th. And uh, I'm looking forward to continuing to teach my media literacy classes for fifth and sixth grade, but uh, getting to shift back into my instructional coaching role halftime. And so that should be good. We're anticipating maybe a little wintry weather here. Uh, we've we've been out for a couple weeks and apologies that uh, we didn't let folks know about that in advance of last week. But um, what a uh, and hello, Peggy. Glad to have you join us. What, what's the weather been like there? Have, have you, uh, gotten socked in with some snow? And, and was it a white Christmas? Uh, it was a white-ish Christmas. We've had snow come and go. And the weather's been remarkably similar the last six weeks or so. Um, highs anywhere from mid-20s to mid-40s and the lows overnight, uh, from the mid-10s to the mid-30s. So it's, 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 I would say it's slightly warm for the time of year in Missoula. Um, but, uh, uh, otherwise, you know, winter-ish. And, uh, Peggy's asking, I think I noticed you being in perhaps Cupertino at the, uh, Apple campus there. Is that, <laughs> would you be sporting a new device today, Dr. Knight? Um, uh, no, but I'm likely to have two of them next week. So I did, um, I did purchase on Swappa a used, um, iPhone XS. Oh, I thought you were. So, no, no, not yet. The, the watch, the watch is still a curiosity to me. Um, and then I do expect, uh, my, my MacBook to show up, my MacBook M1 to show up next week. So I wanted the phone because I like, if if my memory serves me correctly from oh so long ago, I liked how those two devices talk to each other pretty well. And I would assume that that's that much better. Um, uh, uh, since I've last had multiple things in the architecture, but yeah. I'm going to be Mac guy here probably in the next couple of weeks. So wow, momentous changes to just, you know, just when you've lost hope in 2020, look what's happened. <laughs> Jason. Well, so. and I, and I will say that, and this is actually a good segue to, uh, um, a couple quick articles that we can j- jump on. Uh, there is a great, uh, uh, article from nine to five Mac on December 19th talking about how, um, the Apple Silicon in K-12 could represent a, a pretty serious uh, 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 kind of evolution in technology in K-12 classrooms. And um, what I what I liked ab- about this was that it mentioned one of the key features for me of of, of the M1 uh, Max. And who knows what they're going to look like next year, right? Like I did hear a review over the weekend of uh, the biggest problem. Uh, the biggest problem for the Apple M1s is actually for Apple because they're going to have to come up with some really important 
impressive stuff next year for their pro upgrades, which is what almost everyone expects them to do is release silicon, Apple Silicon based Macs next year that are, um, for lack of a better way of putting it, um, uh, uh, pro additions to things, right? Um, but that they mentioned this article, uh, that one of the greatest things about the, the M1 silicon or M1 Apple silicon max is that their 18 hours of purported battery life, especially in the, uh, the one that's most likely for classrooms. I would guess that there are a few schools that, that aren't going to go with that base model because of the speed and, and the ability of that base model. So that's the MacBook Air with eight gigs of RAM. Um, that uh, having that, you know, have a, a at least a single day of charge so you can get through the whole school day without having to plug in is really quite extraordinary. So a uh, super interesting uh, 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 piece of information. And then because, again, I have ordered and uh, this was a question that's come up, there was a really great uh, uh, video release just before Christmas by Lisa at Mobile Tech Review, one of my favorite uh, review sites on YouTube. She goes through almost all of the great laptop and tablet hardware. But uh, the um, she does a really interesting video about whether or not you need the 8 or 16 gigabyte um, RAM model on all of the Macs. And what was really interesting about that is that she said for most users, right? And when a lot of the YouTube folks talk about uh, most users, they're really talking about even even pro users, that maybe doing advanced things aren't taxing these computers nearly as much as those that are utilizing the professional level video editing suites or doing really detailed work in something like Photoshop. So I don't, uh, the, the best I ever get is using Camtasia Studio when editing video. Maybe I would start using iMovie again. I haven't used iMovie in a long time, uh, being that I'm going to probably end up back on the Mac platform for at least the, the foreseeable future. Um, but otherwise, I'm not a super pro user. I did opt for the 16 gigabyte because I want to future proof as much as possible. But her claim was that, that for the vast majority of users, the eight gigabytes is, is more than enough RAM in part because the architecture is different uh, on these. It, it looks more like the um, uh, the iPad and the iPhone, and iPads and iPhones have been historically uh, low on RAM. They don't ever really advertise the amount of RAM in those devices, and yet that's something that's that's a critical focus on Android, and it may be these ARM-based chips. It doesn't really matter. So, so a lot of rambling on about Apple, but uh, uh, Wes, any thoughts? I know that have you had a chance to, to see uh, an M1 in action yet? I have not, but I've been you know listening to to my normal or maybe a little more dose of tech podcasts over the holidays. Everyone who has laid hands on M1 is just gushing with enthusiasm. So that's just a universal that, and that's pretty extraordinary, you know. I mean, is and it's amazing. We kind of expect Apple. I don't know, a lot of us do to just keep on, you know, reinventing, defining new, you know, being, being so, so innovative. Um, it really appears that they've made a huge, a huge leap forward. And I listened to, I think it was the, um, it was the end of your podcast from Twit, uh, which is, you know, this week in tech, just a great podcast. And they had a really great panel on. And I think this was Steve Gibson from Security Now talking about this. They were talking about Intel and the processor chips and what a what a major thing this is. 
And really, it's a, a kind of an innovator's dilemma thing with Intel in terms of Intel's been ruling the world, right? I mean, with Microsoft, I mean, they were on top of it. And that's who Apple, you know, switched over to, right? Uh, not that many years ago when they switched to the Intel architecture. Um, but just Intel has has really failed to innovate. And there's probably some some big lessons there. But Apple is not falling into that pit and that trap. And I think that at, at, at school, as we look at, you know, uh, return on investment, it's going to be interesting. We are we were expecting to to have iPads in the hands of uh, sixth grade students and teachers for half the year. And then the plan was for seventh grade teachers and students to have them. Uh, and then everyone else has Chromebooks. And, and then we make a decision at the end of this year. At this point, it looks like they're not going to switch. And I can see the, the benefits. And as a sixth grade teacher, I think it'll be great to, to continue to have my kids with their iPads. But we don't have the Mac laptop as one of the finalists. We're really looking between uh, iPad and Chromebook. And I really want to take a look at whether the M1 shouldn't be on our list because it just it doesn't it. I don't think we're going to have any kind of compromises with it, you know, and, and I've, and I love my iPad. I do not want to give my iPad up, but I don't use my iPad as my daily productivity driver to do all of the things educationally and just work wise that I need to do. And I know that people that there's a lot of folks and Apple included for quite a while has wanted us in education to embrace the iPad, to be able to say, yes, I can do everything. And I, anyway, I just uh, think it's pretty exciting, as Peggy put it in, in the chat, you know, to hear uh, people talking about, you know, par- perhaps the new MacBook Air, you know, best laptop ever built for education. Talking about 18 hours of battery life. I mean, that's a that's a very just practical kind of thing. But um, there, there's a, there's a lot more to it. And obviously, price is is a significant piece of that as well. But. When we talk about purchasing a device for school, I think we've generally thought about maybe, you know, three to four years, but we're not thinking about, oh, yeah, you buy this in fifth grade and you're going to keep this through 12th grade. I mean, I don't think most people, certainly with a Chromebook, um, but even with an iPad or whatever, I mean, that's just you've been thinking about you're going to have to have something else. And so it's exciting. I think the first M1 that we'll have in our family will will probably be, and I know she doesn't watch the show, so she won't get too excited by this, uh, but probably our daughter next summer, you know, as she is going to be a senior. And and I think we can expect to, to have her use that thing through college. I'd, I'd really, based on processor speed and, and the past track record of Apple with return on investment, I think that we're going to have, we're going to have a lot of that. Right. So that, is going to be interesting to see not only how folks respond, but also how Apple responds, because the push that I have seen in the education space has really, really been strong iPad. And I wonder with the M1 if that's going to change the mix at all for Apple education. Yep, absolutely. And the thing that... um you mentioned that 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 five years is, is is a pretty realistic lifespan, I think, for a Mac. And the other thing that is that if let's say it goes for four years, there's a pretty decent chance you won't be able to get fifty percent of the value back. You could probably get twenty or thirty percent of the value back in selling it used and then buying whatever the latest one is. And once you kind of are in that Apple ecosystem, obviously that's much less of a, a realistic thing for schools. But um, I, I, you know, I I was always really interested when the Mac Pro came. Or I'm sorry, the i iPad Pro came out with the whole notion of 
you know, that it's uh, it's super thin and light and had a beautiful screen, but uh, you know, it it it's a it, it can be in a in a coffee shop, right? It's it's got the keyboard. It allows you to use the 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 mouse like features now um uh, on the iPad, but I've never found iPad OS to be enough to get 80% of the things I do done. And that's really where I, I think that it's really tempted me when, when the M1 chip came out is that it's fast. It's, uh, uh, it, it, it's very efficient. Uh, and it's got incredible battery life that I could probably get away from not charging for two to three days, um, uh, with, you know, uh, regular work time use. And yeah, it should be really interesting. Um, and, uh, I, I think I, I have some other articles tonight that we, we may, may or may not get to. Uh, Microsoft is heading in that direction. Chrome is heading in that direction. And although we are not a stock advice store, I would not recommend buying Intel stock because it feels like that between AMD and what they're doing with the Ryzen chips for more kind of gamer style uh, desktops and laptop machines, and then what ARM-based chips are doing really for everything else, uh, the whole notion of the Intel architecture is going to be a, a, a data construct in, in, in none too long. Well, let me pick up a segue to an obscure article. I think I might have put it down at the bottom under maybe even miscellaneous, but it has to do with with processors and computing. And by the way, if you would like, you can check out all of the links for today's show and all of our shows from the beginning of time for EdTechSR at EdTechSR.com slash links. Uh, Since especially we were off last week, we have a lot of links, so we are not going to be talking through all of these. Um Categories we have, uh, big picture, follow-up on Boston Dynamics, copyright open culture, Microsoft, Google, we've already taken care of the Apple articles, connectivity, tech correction, security, podcasting, media literacy, space, drones, and miscellaneous. So, you know, we're, we can basically be the six-hour show here if we wanted to, to talk that long. But um, I'm going to take that segue of what you were just talking about in terms of Intel and operating system architecture uh, to bring everyone's attention to an article from ZDNet that was back on, um, I'm going to put the date into the article. Sometimes these articles are hard to find, uh, December 8th, and it's called, What is Neuromorphic Computing? Everything you need to know about it, about how it is changing the future of computing. So a lot of us have heard of Moore's Law. Moore's Law is the observation that, you know, about every 18 months, we saw a doubling in processor speed and the prices coming, you know, down. Exponential change. And Moore's Law has has been really what Intel rode to, you know, wealth and market dominance. Um, but they reached a point where they were not able to continue making things smaller and especially more efficient. And that's where they really missed the boat with mobility. And that's what the M1 is, is so exciting about is because it, it does draw much less power. Now, we've been talking a little bit on the show every now and then about quantum computing, and that is supposed to be this up and coming revolution uh, where, uh, you know, a, a particular, you know, uh, switch and I guess in a computer is not going to just have a zero or a one. It's going to have another option. And if quantum computing comes to pass, you know, it might break encryption as we know it. It could just be phenomenal and, and crazy how fast it is. Well, this neuromorphic computing, and I mean, I've been down some rabbit holes uh, on YouTube, and I think this might have been, there's a Nova special. I'll try to drop this this link in. It was, it was about, can we create a human brain? That's where I, I heard about this. It uses the brain as the model for processing. And so I probably have heard about this before. 
but I just read this article and I stayed at a Holiday Inn Express like two years ago before COVID. Uh, the Von, is it the Von Neumann? Um, no, I've said that. Uh, Von Neumann, um, architecture. Did my mouse just die? Uh, Okay. It was, it basically separates the CPU from RAM to, to Jason's point where, you know, with most computer systems, yeah, the von Neumann, um, architecture, it's a separation. You, you have separate chips for your, your processor and your, and your RAM memory, and you have to shuttle everything back and forth. Well, the brain doesn't do that. It's together. And so neuromorphic computing, which folks are working on, actually puts everything all together. I do not know if the M1 is doing some of that, but, but what you're referencing and we've heard people talk about is that the design of these computers is different. So you can't just do an apples to, no pun intended, apples to apples, you know, compare of just talking about RAM and, and processor speed. And so anyway, I thought that was pretty interesting. And so we not only have quantum computing on the horizon, but according to the authors of this ZDNet article, uh, neuromorphic computing is coming as well. Um, and that's pretty amazing, right? Because people have sort of lamented the end of Moore's law and how we're just going to see the end of this explosive growth. And then there's other people who have said, well, maybe not, because it may not just be, you know, smaller and smaller nanometer, same kind of architecture. It could be something very different. And it does feel like the M1 is different. In And uh, anyway, that's just uh, another article that I saw this last week that had to do with computer architecture. And I agree, we're not a stock show, but, um, you know, we're, we're getting our crystal, you know, crystal balls out a lot. In fact, I almost thought about, you know, doing a show that was like the top stories of, uh, of 2020 or whatever, uh, top trends and that kind of setting. It's pretty, it's challenging to do to kind of get that, that kind of big picture. But I think overall, the move to mobility, the move to, um, you know, processors that are, are consuming less energy, uh, are, are more efficient. Can do more, um, you know. This we're we're getting to the point where you know these devices. Microsoft at one point, and, and I, I had a, a a member of my staff who had one of these phones at one point. He could just plug his phone into a full blown keyboard and and mouse and screen, and he was good to go. Um, we're we're headed there, you know. So I think that that's exciting, and I don't know that we're going to see a neuromorphic computer in twenty twenty one that's going to revolutionize stuff, but. I think the track that Apple's on is is significant. And the fact, like you said, that Microsoft and, and these other companies are following suit speaks a lot or says a lot. Yep, absolutely. And there is a lot of really interesting stuff hardware-wise to come. And, you know, it's often said that we're in a, 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 a bit of a renaissance of technology hardware, but I do think we are, uh, based on, on what, I, what I'm reading and a lot of the podcasts I'm listening to, there's some amazing stuff coming up next year. And I think a lot of that is ARM-based processors, many of them, uh, uh, you know, very advanced in comparison to processors even five years ago. But I think you'll see a lot of really great, amazing hardware improvements in 2021. All right. Well, we only have about 10 topics, Jason. So what a, what's a priority for you that you'd like to talk about here in the next 40 minutes? Well, there was a really uh, interesting article in Ed Surge on December 16th. And um, there, there's, a, there's a, a couple of caveats inside the article, but Paul Emmerich France argues that we need to think about ed tech in a frame of minimalism um, or what he calls ed tech minimalism uh, in the era of distance learning. And um, and uh, this really did remind me of something that um, 
uh, in my own experience in this. And um, I'm coming up on uh, 11 years in a couple weeks uh, working for the Montana Digital Academy, uh, Montana State Virtual School. And I reflect a lot on my, my first year because I spun my wheels a lot. There's only two of us in the office the first year. We were really minimalized staff. staff. Um, I did most of the computer side stuff of getting the, 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 uh, the state virtual school stood up. But the thing that was really interesting about um, uh, about our time there is that when I first started thinking about the development of classes, one of the things that I, I focused a lot on, which was something very popular during that time period, was all the amazing kind of read-write web tools that were available and Web 2.0. And, and that's a, becoming a very dated term to describe the evolution of the Internet from, you know, 15, 16, 17, 18 years ago. But uh, that was something that I focused a lot on. And... Uh, one of the tips I learned very quickly was that, especially for teachers that weren't already um, kind of uh, exploring on their own, they weren't innovators in the space, they weren't pushing the envelope in the space, the more tools I introduced, the less likely it was they would adopt them. And more importantly, the more confused they'd be about what the purpose of those tools are. And so one of the things that... Uh, um, uh, this article argues for is the notion that, that a less is more posture is, is really, um, uh, a uh, super important when you are, are so quickly evolving your space, your, your ecosystem for, for something like a distance learning. Um, and he offers some, some pretty good tips about the notion of, you know, choosing good big apps that serve a lot of different, uh, uh, uh curricular areas without adopting a lot smaller apps, uh, minimize active, uh, or I'm sorry, minimize screen time and maximize active time when you're on a screen as opposed to passively being on a screen. They're talking to course of students and then, you know, have people interact with one another. So, Wes, you've been on the tech director side of things. You've been on the tech director side of things. You've been a classroom teacher. You've been a professor. You've been a PD trainer. What's your perspective? Is minimalism the way to greatness in regards to our kind of mass thrust towards distance learning? Well, I think I think pedagogy is the key. In fact, I was I, I hadn't uh, followed Paul uh, France before and, you know, was just following him and checking out his Twitter thread. His book is called Humanizing Distance Learning. The key is pedagogy. It's, it's not about tools. It's about how we're using them. And, um, Shelly, my wife and I had a lovely conversation today with, uh, with somebody, uh, working for, for an ed tech company doing some research for them. And we were talking about a variety of different things, but it came down to this. It's about good learning. And how do you promote good learning? Well, it's not about one size fits all. It's about differentiation. It's about meeting the needs of learners. But it's often, uh, it often needs to be a conversation about, about assessment, uh, about engagement with content and ideas, um, and, and having a robust set of tools to do that. And so I, I haven't read this article yet, so I'm not, completely versed on Paul's perspective, but I think the perspective of focusing on, on pedagogy and um, certainly not leading with tools as you were referencing with web 2.0 and we've, we're, we're still, and we have historically had the, the uh, technology adoption curve in schools of some early adopters, innovators, you know, some laggards, a lot of folks there in the middle. Um, you know, we don't need to be leading these conversations with discussing tools, we need to be talking about the kinds of learning that we want to have happening in, in, 
our classrooms, whether it's remote or face-to-face. I think we need to be sharing stories about that. And I think that the role of technology can and should become more and more transparent. It, not, not in the fact that we don't need it and connectivity is not a big deal and digital divide. All that stuff is. It's really, really important. Uh, but it doesn't have to be this focus that we have in terms of, of the tool. So I don't know how responsive that is to his articles and, and his positions, Jason. What, what are your thoughts? Well, um, I, I did order his book, Dehuman, or Humanizing Distance Learning, uh, because one of the things that he has a, a, a couple chapters I think are, um, actually marry maybe where my philosophy was as a classroom teacher, uh, with, you know, uh, some, some subtle changes I've made over time, uh, administering a distance learning program. But I would say that, that, uh, I, the worst thing we could do, uh, when this is all over with is abandon the progress we've made in, in getting teachers as efficient as possible at being good um, purveyors of technology in the classroom. And I couldn't agree with you more, Wes, that the center always has to be, what is this doing to help or evolve the learning inside the classroom? And I don't hear as much as, as, as maybe what I did 20 years ago when a lot of uh, 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 influxes of cash in school districts, whether it was grants or uh, permissive levies or you know, whatever strategy or tool you were using to, to, you know, kind of push your district or, or, or school or classroom forward to get more technology inside the classroom. But there was a lot of focus, uh, initially, I think, to saying it's not, it's not what's the learning and how's that evolving with the infuse of technology. It's, you know, are you using the technology to its maximum, which is not really the purpose of technology. It has to be the learning piece first. And so, um, you know, the more we focus on, you know, if we're going to spend money and then train teachers and provide resources, uh, then, yeah, we should have learning outcomes in mind, first and foremost, over everything. And I guess I'd like people not to be saying that it's not about the technology. Let, let's just talk about good questions. Let's yeah. talk about our goals. Let's talk about the kinds of, of dynamics we want to see in a learning environment. Uh, and then let's talk about ways that we're assessing that and, and the ways that we're you know, being engaged in the learning process and the culture that we're building, you know, not only within our classrooms, but hopefully within the school, um, you know, and, and for students. So I, those are the kind of conversations that I absolutely agree can be catapulted forward substantially by the skills and the kinds of experiences that many, many teachers may have had for the first time as a result of the pandemic. Um, and I think this is going to be, this is going to be really important because there are going to be folks, I think, who are ready to just go back to the way it was. Oh, thank goodness that's over. You know, now let's go back. But the, the honest truth is the, the instructional, the predominant instructional, um, you know, models that we've been following in, in a lot of schools and in a lot of places for many years. Um, there've been a lot of students that haven't been served well by those. And there's a just, uh, this would be a great, great thing to do as a reflective activity for professional growth and development in, in our school and probably every school. And that is let's look at the things that we've used and done and the ways we've grown and been stretched by this pandemic what are the things that we don't want to lose and we want to bring forward and maybe even deepen and go further with rather than saying this, okay, woo, it's all over, you know, back, back to whatever kind of brick and mortar tradition we were doing before it started. Absolutely. Okay. Where to next, sir? 
All right. Well, let's talk about some space stuff for fun. I, I put a couple of these in uh, the miscellaneous category, and I was like, no, it needs its own category altogether. So in the midst of, you know, all kinds of bad news and a lot of challenges that we certainly had in 2020, what a fantastic year for space. So the first link I just dropped in uh, that's on the top of the that category is um, – a short way from NPR podcast, which by the way, I love, I don't know if you put me onto that Jason or where I had heard about that, but that is a great little short scientifically oriented technology, often oriented podcast. And so it's 11 minutes. <clears throat> and so they are talking about really the great things that were ha- that happened in space as far as SpaceX being able to, to send humans from, you know, uh, capsules and rockets that have been made here in the United States back up into space. Um, what has happened with Japan six years ago, they sent a mission to an asteroid and they've brought back, you know, dirt from this asteroid that we think is from the beginning of, of the solar system, China, you know, just here recently, uh, like right before we went on break, or maybe this was like right around Thanksgiving time, uh, they had had their rocket that, that sent a rover to Mars, but it's actually returned now with, did I say uh, say Mars? I didn't mean Mars, Uh, the moon. They have sent it to the moon. It has uh, picked up moon rocks that hadn't happened for 40 years and it's landed in, in Mongolia. So the Japanese mission, uh, I think landed in the middle of, of the Australian continent. Uh, China brought it back to Mongolia. Um, Really, really exciting things that are happening in the world of space. This is important stuff to to tell our students. Our daughter Rachel and I watched the first man uh, movie again last year or last night, which was from 2018. That was the story of of Neil Armstrong and a lot of the story of of our space program. Uh, but I've got a couple other articles uh, in there from uh, Universe Today about the the China mission dropping off the moon samples, a TechCrunch article about uh, Japan's mission bringing back the asteroid rocks. And then the last one is a TechCrunch article uh, that's upcoming. So this was from New Year's Eve on December 24th. Watch the seven minutes of terror awaiting NASA's perseverance on its Martian descent. So JPL has come up with a visualization of what they're going to be dropping on the surface of Mars. And this rover is going to have a drone. And so if all goes well, which is just incredible, right? This is rocket science then we're going to have a drone flying in the thinner atmosphere of Mars and sending back some of that footage. This is freaking exciting stuff. And so I would encourage you to check that out and uh, share it with students because this is exciting stuff to talk about and amidst everything else going on, especially politically, which is important in our country and COVID is important. There's some other exciting stuff that's happening that definitely ties to technology, to exploration, to curiosity, and to why we need students to be, you know, fired up, learning, and also, you know, doing well in, in their math and their science classes because STEM careers and, and STEM, um, STEM work is going to continue to be so important in the world. Agreed. And, um, you know, it is something that, that is going on, um, uh, despite the pandemic, right? Like that, that's what's so great about, and uh, I particularly like about that notion of at least it was good for space exploration. There is so many exciting things going on. It's unfortunate that in a lot of cases, those headlines uh, end up getting not quite missed, but buried right amongst the other uh, uh, more tragic things that were going on. But uh, I think it's going to 2021 is going to be another very exciting year. Absolutely. All right. Where to next, sir? 
Uh, let's see here. Here's a piece of great news uh, the, for January 1st. Um, our good friends at the Internet Archive blog uh, noted that something really nice happens on January 1st, and that is everything um, from 1925 and before is now in the public domain, which means copyright expires for works copyrighted in 1925. And there are some extraordinary things that, that come out of copyright um, uh, on January 1st, um, including The Great Gatsby, the novel The Great Gatsby, uh, the novel Mrs. Dalloway by Virginia Woolf, uh, and uh, uh, massive troves of pictures, uh, which had been uh, previously copyrighted, are now being released under the public domain. And uh, there are um, uh, uh, going to be probably a lot of articles on this in in the near dear blogs. Uh, Archive.org is a great place to go. In fact, I'll be in a moment sharing that as my Geek of the Week because it's just such an amazing uh, website. But uh, it means you can use all those materials without copyright. It means that publishers can take those materials uh, without having to, to uh, compensate the original copyright owner. And again, 95-year-old uh, you know, works in this particular case are what's being released. And uh, it's a great day for open culture, I think. Absolutely. And it's an important day to be talking about intellectual property and copyright. Those conversations can be conversations that sometimes teachers will shy away from or just defer to the school librarian or somewhere else, someone else. Um, it's really important that we talk about those kind of things and discussing the public domain and the, the rights that we have to be able to do uh, things with those works and the purpose of copyright overall, right? It wasn't to bring unending you know, uh, profits to the Disney Corporation. Uh, Disney's one, you know, company that has tried successfully in many cases to extend copyright law out, but it was to provide a short period of protection for copyright creators. Um, but then have those, those, you know, um, artistic works, you know, pass into the public domain. Um, that's certainly the, the spirit of copyright law in the United States. It's different in different parts of the world, but yeah, fantastic. And glad to hear you talking about the Internet Archive, because that is a superb nonprofit that I certainly hope is going to continue to thrive and succeed not only in 2021, but forever. I, I never want to see them go away. Okay, where to next, sir? Let's see. Uh, why don't we talk a little bit about the tech correction? You, you did a privacy article there. Let me do one that I put in the same category. Really a fantastic article. I found this under, I think, long reads, um, that I subscribed to on Flipboard. I haven't mentioned that in a while, but I mean, I love Flipboard on my iPad. That's one of the best me too. apps for being able to, to read as a digital magazine. So this is from a, a, a magazine called Logic Magazine. The article from December 20th is called Inside the Whale, an interview with an anonymous Amazonian. And um, we've talked a lot on the show about the technology correction. That's the top the topic here that, that this is under. And, and that what's happening um, with a lot of complex factors is that we are poised to have a push for regulation, a push for more restrictions on companies, um, you know, from government. We've seen that already in Europe. We're seeing it in California and in, in you know, parts of the United States. There's discussion about this. We're also seeing companies respond. Um, this article is really a an interesting, not only historical look at Amazon and how, you know, Amazon grew and developed, but, you know, cloud computing and the ways in which uh, big companies, um, 
you know, and, and not just big companies, I should say, you know, companies around the world, you know, Amazon cloud services, AWS, it's incredible the power and the reach that this has. The things that Amazon is able to do because they're so profitable in the web, in the cloud space. Um, and then, you know, is, is that something that necessarily is good for everybody? I mean, it's, there's, there's something called network effects, which, as I understand it, as a very amateur economist, means that in general, uh, absent regulation or other kinds of, of significant events, you know, the, the big fish get bigger and it's harder and harder to enter a market. And as things develop, you know, it, it's more difficult for in, innovators to break in. Uh, and, and these, these large players just get bigger and bigger. And so Amazon, you know, Jeff Bezos is the, the wealthiest person in the world, right? Elon Musk, I think, is now number two. And that substantially changed quite a bit over the last year um, with his companies. In fact, this isn't in the show, but uh, he's, they're talking about maybe bringing to, he's talking, has tweeted maybe just about, you know, bringing all his companies together, kind of like Google did with Alphabet. Uh, but I, that's a fascinating article. And understanding Amazon and getting some deeper insight into it is important for, for, Several reasons, uh, but one of them is we all need to personally decide the companies that we're going to be investing in and, you know, entrusting with, with our devices. Um, I think Jason probably has a, uh, very diverse, you know, range of, of smart speakers and different screens and devices and platforms, maybe, maybe more so than just about anybody that I know. Um, we're headed towards the smart future of the smart home, you know, with, with these connected devices and things like that. And so there's both reasons to try and understand Amazon thinking of, as a citizen uh, about what we might want to be advocating for or against when it comes to regulation or change. Um, we just, of course, have had debate in the United States Congress about Section 230 and whether or not that should be repealed while we're, you know, increasing the stimulus payments from 600 to $2,000 a person and, Anyway, I don't think that's going to be happening, um, but the tech correction is going on and <clears throat> Amazon's a huge part of this. And this is one of the most insightful articles that I've run, a, run across in, in quite a while. So thoughts about that, Dr. Neifer, or about the year we gave up on privacy? Well, I mean, yeah, it, it, it uh, the, the, the uh, recode article that, that I uh, posted in the tech notes called the year we gave up on privacy uh, starts to put some, some finer points on that, on what 2020 looked like in regards to the privacy debate. I will admit part of the reason why I'm moving back to the Apple architecture, at least for mobile devices, uh, is that I am interested in some of the privacy things that, that Apple's doing. But the bottom line is, is that, uh, uh, you know, we, there were, in desperation, a lot of people move stuff online uh, this year that that maybe wasn't of their own uh, desire, and uh, a lot of of money got infused in a technology because of the sudden necessity uh, to utilize technology to stay connected, to order groceries, to uh, uh, track close contacts. But as things shake out, and as COVID becomes a a a, a past tense issue. Um, which I hope is sooner rather than later, we need to make sure that we are then re reflecting not just on what we did right or wrong in, in dealing with the pandemic, but also what we did right or wrong with a sudden massive in, in, influx of users in technology that may or may not protect users' privacies. And that article about the year we gave up on privacy from Recode is, is really outstanding and kind of detailing 
uh, all the things that happened this year and a lot of the real risk of privacy happened before COVID um, uh, 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 was a, a well-known word or before COVID, I should say COVID was even named. Um, and it was instead the so-called novel novel coronavirus. But the bottom line is, is that um, the tech correction, which we've been working, we're talking about here on the podcast for years now, they too mention the Cambridge Analytical scandal and Facebook as a beginning of this kind of reckoning in regards to privacy. Let's hope that we have it within us to find the balance between allowing tools to be powerful so they're useful, but still maintaining your privacy, whether it's for advertising, target advertising dollars, or truly things that you want to keep uh, just to yourself. Absolutely. Um, I'll answer this question in the show. Peggy's got a quick question uh, on Audacity, a video tutorials. Um, I'll take a look, uh, Peggy. Um, I've definitely, you know, done a done a lot of work with Audacity. It's been a little little while, but I'll I'll I'll, I'll dig around and see. Um, I think it's the the most powerful and useful uh, audio editing platform. Uh, certainly, that's that's not, you know, made by Adobe and expensive. Um, but even so, it's. The, the, you, you mentioned earlier in the show, low bar, high ceiling, you know, Audacity, um, doesn't have the highest ceiling, like, uh, like, um, oh, whatever Adobe, Adobe Audition does, but it, there's a ton that you can do with it. So I'll, uh, write that a note to myself to look into that. Where would you like to go next, sir? Uh, let's see a couple quick, um, uh, Google articles. Uh, there, uh, let me start off one with, this is from the tech dater which is a bizarre name, uh, but I did uh, triple-check the source to make sure it was legitimate. 28 browser extensions found to be stealing data in Chrome and Edge. And uh, this is not, this is a, a really uh, impacting both um, architectures because you can install Chrome extensions on Edge, but Edge also has its own extension store. So it's a little bit of both. But basically, 28 vulnerable extensions that had over 3 million joint installations were found to be a sniffing around a private data. And there's kind of a theme that goes with them. Uh, here's some names from the Chrome uh, extension store, um, direct messenger for Instagram, downloader for Instagram, universal video downloader, uh, Vimeo video downloader, zoomer for Instagram and Facebook, um, upload photo to Instagram. So these were things that were for lack of a better way of putting it, uh, you know, I, I think targeting, um, uh, uh, you know, kind of a certain mass audience, uh, with, with this note, uh, with these notions of why, why they were allowing this. And you would also not question because it would need access to websites to do these things, right? So even if it warns you to say it needs access to websites to be able to function, well, of course it does because it is the universal video downloader, right? It needs to access the website to be able and interact with it to pull video down. But, um, all these extensions and a number in the Edge browser store um, were all found uh, to be have a malicious code in them. And I'd say this is a fantastic, uh, pretty easy thing to do that I would encourage us to do uh, in, 20, in, in early 2021. Have someone else take a look at the extensions that you have on your device. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I've worked with teachers something weird is happening. The computer's going slow, or maybe it's just that we're trying to look at something else. And I'm like, okay, let's look at your extensions. Hmm. What's that? And there's something that's like PDF reader. You don't need an extension to read PDFs, you know, in the Chrome browser. It happens natively in every, in every browser, but some of the names that you were mentioning there about, you know, video helper and things like that. And, and sometimes it, it's very, very important 
that we um, know exactly what we've given authorization to inside our Chrome browser, especially when we're granting access, you know, to our Google account. Um, it, you know, th well, think about just uh, what was Pokemon Go, right? The the developers of that, which you would think they had their act together, you know, ended up getting people to to give initially, you know, complete access, I think, to your Google Drive and to your Google account, which was completely unnecessary to be able to play the game. But evidently, these things are not that hard to do. And we are in the in the habit, unfortunately, of like, oh, yeah, 48 page, you know, iTunes uh, terms of service and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, click, click, click. Yes, yes, yes. So that's an important thing for us to do with colleagues. It's an important thing for us to do uh, for ourselves and with family members. It is also a very important thing to do with students. And so as I'm, I'm having students install extensions and talking about that, we'll take a look. How many users does this have? How many reviews? How do we know we can trust this? And that's, by the way, a hugely valuable question to be asking everybody to think about. How do you decide what you trust and why is that important? And when it comes to your information, your privacy, your data, um, it's super important. So, and then one more related article, and uh, I thought this was a really interesting one. This is from Panda Security, the Panda Security blog. Panda is a um, uh, an antivirus and security software uh, 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 manufacturer, dealer, programmer. Um, but they have a really interesting article in their blog saying, "Can you trust the Google Play Store?" Which uh, they cite a statistic that blew me away. It said that. Researchers from IMDEA Software Institute in Madrid discovered that 87% of all infections uh, made on Android devices are made through apparently legitimate downloads direct from Google. And here, one of the, the uh, amazing slash dangerous things that Android allows you to do is you can download apps uh, from third-party Play Stores uh, directly from the web and install them. And in fact, I have four or five apps on my phone that I regularly install for a variety of reasons that don't come from the Google. Play Store. And a lot of people, and, and you'll see this advice when you are on the internet and they're recommending a direct to download app for Android, they'll say, you know, just remember that this, um, this, this is a security issue, right? Like doing this, you should only do this is something that you very much trust. But the bottom line is, is that uh, it appears from what this article is talking about, that the research suggests that you can download plenty of pretty gross things from the official Google Play Store. Now, in my mind this is in part because uh, apple is 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 somewhat famous about being better about this although some things have definitely slipped past uh, apple reviewers too but when you have a a marketplace like the Google Play Store or the Apple App Store, for that matter, that has literally millions of applications, of which many of which are submitting uh, new versions and um, evolved features on a pretty regular basis. It takes an extraordinary infrastructure to be able to monitor and then evaluate uh, these particular apps. So uh, super interesting. They recommend, by the way, as one strategy to download uh, antivirus, uh, basically, on your Android phone. Find a, a purveyor you trust. And I'm going to go ahead and guess that this company is a purveyor of Android antivirus, but something to keep in mind. That was my point. And this is another, this is uh, Wes's tech tip, uh, media literacy tip, uh, you know, for the, for 2020, whenever we come to a news article like this, that we don't know, put the name of the domain of that into your Google search bar with the word 
Wikipedia and then look that up. So I've just dropped into the chat the talk page for Panda Security, uh, which is very interesting to see what people are talking about, the Wikipedians, in terms of debating this. Um, the, the overview of the, of the article right now says, in 2005, Panda Security was the fourth largest antivirus vendor worldwide with 3.2% of the marketplace. So, yeah, I think we do... Um, want to be, want to be wary of, of that. There certainly are lots of articles that we've, we've talked about, you know, through the years, uh, which we can say that now through the years, episode 203, um, you know, about problems with, with the Chrome store. And there, there, there seem to be far less issues with the Apple app store. It's just curated much more tightly, um, than the Android, uh, the app, the, the, the Google Play Store is, you know, for either Chrome devices or for, for Android devices. So media literacy as we, as we look at that and consider, I'm, it'll be interesting, Jason, to see what you end up doing. I'm not running antivirus and we're not as a school on our devices anymore. Uh, we were for quite a while. When I came to our school, we were. And uh, finally, we, you know, abandoned that probably about three years ago. Uh, the antivirus stuff was just slowing things down and you would catch some, some stuff, but it was, it's, it's, it's super, super rare that we see, um, you know, malware of some kind on the Mac. It's act, it's more oftentimes now that we'll see something like you just mentioned with the Chrome browser, some kind of, you know, fishy, uh, not to play on words there, but it can be, uh, fishy extensions that are, that are fishing for information or, or compromising information or things like that. Right. So. And user beware. And I would mention that uh, still one of the most effective ways to get to end users is social engineering. And in fact, there's been a number of attempts uh, in on my institution in the last couple of weeks. It's increased certainly in frequency. Uh, so, you know, just because you have software installed that is security software, if you take specific steps that are dangerous and, and not thoughtful in their implementation, you could be at risk whether you have the best antivirus software on earth or not. Well, mentioning media literacy, I'll do a couple articles that we've got uh, there under that headline. Uh, this first uh, couple from the BBC News, this one's from November or sorry, December the 9th. COVID, how a picture of my foot became anti-vaccine propaganda. This is absolutely fascinating in terms of the ways that media can be quickly co-opted by a group and you know, shot all over the, the internet and it can just become completely impossible for the person who originally, you know, took the photograph or for others to take control of the narrative that is surrounding this. So uh, it's kind of a yucky picture of, uh, of, of some of this woman's foot. Uh, and, and there was an allegation that this had something to do with a vaccine. It didn't end up having to do that, but the anti-vax community grabbed this and, and I think still is, you know, using this kind of as a bludgeon to try to scare people to say, Hey, you know, don't, don't get vaccinated because your foot's going to look like this. It's completely false. Um, the other article, uh, actually that came from, uh, the, the, the Christmas day, I think it was article from BBC news, uh, called the casualties of this year's viral conspiracy theories. I really am now in favor of calling the age that we live in the age of disinformation, uh, because we have created architectures and, and, and structures and, and, and feedback loops and, and just dynamics that make the spread of, of disinformation, of misinformation, malinformation, polluted information, 
you know, rampant and, and it's, and that is not changing anytime, you know, quickly. And so from the people who were working on 5G towers that actually got, a, got, you know, attacked and there were folks who got held hostage in some, you know, parts of South America, um, to, you know, people who have died, uh, because of COVID or have, have come really close to death, uh, who, who just, you know, rejected this and, um, you know, bought into this, this whole idea that, hey, it's a, it's a hoax. It's not real. Um, good, good article covering a lot of bases. And then the last one is actually an NPR article from today, uh, which is, which is a little depressing. So see, we had to do the space news, you know, so, so we didn't just, you know, fall on, fall into a pit of, uh, dystopian depression. But this article by Joel Rose for NPR is called, even if it's bonkers, poll finds many believe QAnon and other conspiracy theories. Uh, there's a lot of folks out there, and this is a very political article. It's talking about a lot of things with respect to the election, whether or not, you know, there was widespread election fraud. There's a ton of people in the United States that, that do believe that. Um, but you know, we're moving into 2021. Uh, we've talked about this on the show before. The, there's a, a very vocal anti-vaccination, anti-vax community that's out there. Uh, I think one of my takeaways from 2020 has just been an eye, it's been eye-opening to see how many people, in, in some cases, you know, folks that I know personally, uh, that, that are smart people, they're intelligent people, and, and they have been, um, for, for a variety of reasons, you know, holding some opinions that are, that, that reject science and that really fly in the face of what a predominant number of professionals in a particular field, like the, the medical profession, you know, have as, as an opinion. So I'll be continuing. In fact, after uh, the holidays here, we're going to be doing the, the, this is second trimester for my media literacy. Six graders, we're going to be uh, doing our, our conspiracy theory unit and talking about the moon landing but it's, this is really important. It is really important for us to hopefully be able to identify the playbook of conspiracy theorists and to try and equip students. And this isn't just students. This, if we could do this with parents, it'd be wonderful. You know, how can we, um, hopefully avoid falling into a trap of, of believing just a real wackadoo, what I might call a fruit loop conspiracy theory. And so this article has some statistics out there that are just a little bit sad. And, and let's hope that that's not going to impact us in a big way when it comes to the vaccines, because we need the vast majority of folks in the world to take these vaccines and not to, you know, be subscribing to some kind of conspiracy theory and thinking that it's going to, you know, it's going to harm them. Yep, absolutely. And one of the ways out of the world of disinformation is helping kids figure out how to verify every source every time. It is. We need to need to be doing that because we're all sharers now. Yep, absolutely. Well, Wes, uh, looks like we're heading towards the top of the hour here. Is there anything else you want to get in before we head to our Geeks of the Week? Uh, let's just do a couple quick things about drones. Um, there's a it's going to, I checked out the website, DP review from December 26th, how one drone pilot got slapped with $182,000 of fines from the FAA. There've been some substantial things that have happened with respect to drones. I was just in Costco tonight eyeing this $300 drone that, that they've got. Um, this was a person who has repeatedly warned uh, about th- uh, places that he was flying and things that he was doing that were not safe. Posting to social media, it reminds me of like, you know, headlines about some criminal who, you know, 
robbed a bank and then, you know, shows it all on Instagram or something like that and then, you know, gets arrested. But uh, anyway, I think it's good to see the FCC taking some assertive action. Um, but there have been a couple changes to the law. And so uh, I had not heard of her before, but the drone girl, the drone girl dot com <clears throat> reported on December 23rd. Uh, that the drone industry is on fire after the U.S. has blacklisted some companies that provide components for drones uh, because of their uh, ties to the Chinese government. And so this is going to have an impact on the drone market in the United States and probably in, in other places as well. It'll be interesting to see what the Biden administration uh, taking over in a few short weeks, that, um, you know, what happens to that whole conversation and um, the situation with China, because there's obviously, and there will continue to be politics involved. Um, it's pretty hard in some cases to discern what is national security, you know, what is politics it, that it's really, really challenging. Uh, but the last article here is uh, about the FAA as well. And it says in uh, it's headline from the verge on the uh, 28th of December in 2023, you won't be able to fly most drones in the U S without broadcasting your location. And frankly, I think this is a really important and needed thing because drones are proliferating and um, we, we don't have, we haven't had a requirement for what, what in regular flying we'd call a transponder, which is a device that broadcasts your location. Interestingly, the article says it's going to, it's going to be, it's going to be sharing the location of you too, as the person who's controlling the drone. Um, and there's a lot of different, a lot of different factors in, involved in all this, but I thought that was interesting. And I mean, we talk sometimes about esports. Are we talking about that in school? How about drones? Drones are huge. And, and by the way, it's amazing to look at drone footage on YouTube. My wife and I have enjoyed seeing some incredible, you know, scenes of, of mountains and snow and panoramas. Uh, there's, you know, there's amazing stuff that, that's available, but lots of commercial applications, military applications, uh, photography applications. Um, and then, of course, there's the whole aspect of criminality and terrorism and, and things like that as well. So I think this is good to see for the FCC. Uh, but on a educational lens, think about the classroom. Um, that might be something I'll talk with my kids about as far as how many of them have have utilized drones, have, util have uh, um, at all been involved in um, doing anything with them and the coding of those, the use of those, it's going to continue to be an important uh, part of our society and culture in the year to come. Absolutely. And then I'll just throw in one quick last article. Uh, the Verge announced today that Amazon is buying Wondery, the podcast network, uh, and setting them up themselves up for a potentially very contentious battle with Spotify who has also uh, gone all in on podcasting. And I just want to remind our many, many corporate listeners that we are still sponsorless here at the EdTech Situation Room. But we could possibly have that conversation in 2021, dabbling with um, the possibilities of uh, compensation, at least for hosting fees. That would be nice. Yes, that would be nice. So, Wes, uh, I think we're near the top of the hour. What is your Geek of the Week this week? Well, I just have one, and it's fun. It is a food website, a recipe website that I have spent a number of hours over the Thanksgiving holidays as well as the Christmas holidays setting up. But it's just food.westfryer.com. Uh, the main thing that kind of, you know, got me going on this, we've we've received some 
uh, recipe books from parents, my wife and I over, you know, the years and her, her parents in 2003 had given us this nice thick binder of about 50 something recipes, about two thirds of which are desserts. So Shelly's mom really loved to make pies and desserts and all kinds of treats, but the, that had a CD in it that uh, has a, a Claris Works database file, <laughs> no PDFs. And so anyway, if you click on the about page, I have a link. I wrote a post on my blog and then I did a little video too about how I set that up uh, with the WordPress theme and all that. It's been kind of a journey. But the bottom line is you can now access all of the recipes that Shelly's mom had uh, created in the Ward family favorites. And I've got uh, about 171 recipes that I uh, cook with regularly on uh, my phone uh, on an app called Paprika. So, Jason, I don't know if, if you have a, a recipe app that you use right now. I don't. Uh, yeah, and yeah. I don't need one, actually. So. Okay. Yeah. Paprika is, is pretty awesome. I love how you can just copy the link to any web um, recipe and then it brings it in and you can just save it as is, but you can also modify it. You can double it. Um, but I needed a, 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 so I've exported those recipes. It's interesting because there's an intellectual copyright issue to this. I wouldn't want to web scrape all these other recipes that I've just, you know, copied because they're not mine but I do want to share them. So they're not linked in, in with the rest of the recipes, but I, over the years, the, especially my girls and I have made some videos about food and things like that. So I've just kind of put those things together and I'm starting to uh, have, have that as a link that I can share. And food is just, uh, you know, it's been interesting to me on Facebook to see the ways in which lots of diverse folks from all kinds of walks of life and political persuasions will rally around conversations about food and alcohol. Alcohol really, really brings out the comments if you want to post something about that. But anyway, food.westfire.com and I'm going to be continuing to post stuff. Jason, we need to probably hear updates about your baking, uh, especially your sourdough, you know, baking skills. I think that when the pandemic is over, which by the way, we're contemplating perhaps a Wyoming trip next year. I don't know if we're going to get to pull that off in July. I think that I need to come up and cook some brisket and perhaps you need to make some sourdough bread and some beverages need to be involved. I'm just going to I'm just going to throw that out there. Maybe yep. we can have it happen next, next summer. If, if, if everyone gets vaccinated, I don't know when it'll happen, but yeah, I, I, I like that. I like where you're thinking. Um, and I will tell you that uh, of, of the, Many things I look forward to in the post-pandemic, it's, you know, getting out and seeing people. I love traveling, and when there are people that uh, I I can connect with and spend good time with, that's even better. And, and interestingly enough, my Geek of the Week is related to your recipe piece. Uh, and I mentioned it a little earlier because I was the archive or, archive.org blog that had mentioned the copyright uh, 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 elapsement for 2020, or I'm sorry, 1925 works. But one of my favorite websites is archive.org. Um, not only do they have a couple of amazing tools like the Wayback Machine where you can see old versions of web pages, they also have an extraordinary collection of books that you can borrow and uh, read through kind of like a Kindle-like e-reader on a tablet, uh, including an iPad or an Android tablet or uh, a Kindle Fire tablet. And what one of the things I love looking up um, on archive.org is they have an incredible collection of cookbooks. And um, what I love is old, like 1950s, 60s, 70s, and 80s vintage uh, church cookbooks in particular, because you can find some extraordinarily fascinating 
uh, uh, recipes. Um, uh, uh, for example, um, a, a couple of the casserole recipes that, that um, I've made over time have come from, you know, old church cookbooks where uh, uh, all the folks in the congregation get together and contribute a favorite family recipe. But they have much more than that there, archive.org, and you can get lost in their vast archive of everything from Apple to E software playable online to church cookbooks. And I just dropped a link for the search. So you can do a good little lesson with students about filtering because you can search for cookbook and then filter for texts only. And then you can start, you know, limiting from there. So fantastic. Go forth and cook something yummy that you find from the Internet Archive. That sounds like a great charge for the end of 2020. Well, Wes, where can people find you on the internet? I am W Fryer on Twitter, my blog, speedofcreativity.org. I continue to share my media and digital literacy and for another week or so, Spanish lessons on mdtech.cassidy.org. How about you, Dr. Matthew? I am on Twitter at Tech Savvy Teach. Uh, coming up in a few weeks will be the opening registration for NCCE 2021. It'll be online in March of this year, www.ncce.org. And um, I am also the curriculum director of the Montana Digital Academy, montanadigitalacademy.org. But this is about us individually. It's about us coming together once a week for the Ed Tech Situation Room podcast. You can download our podcast wherever finer podcasts are aggregated, or you can go to our website, www.edtechsr.com. You can also find our show notes each week. Every article we talk about, we link to there, as long with a lot of, of, of articles we don't get to week to week. If you can join us live, we encourage you to do so. 8 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Central, somewhere in the middle of the night, UTC. We broadcast on YouTube and on Facebook. Find us there by just typing EdTech Situation Room uh, in the search, and you will be able to find us. If you can't join us live, though, again, you can always download us later. Until next week, stay safe, stay savvy, stay safe, stay savvy. Happy New Year to you and your family. We will look forward to talking to you next week in 2021. Happy New Year.